Hi, I'm Jurgi from Kingston Libraries in Victoria. Before we get into today's really exciting episode, as a national group based across Australia, we would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I would specifically like to acknowledge the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the custodians of the land from where I'm speaking, and I pay respect to their elders past, present, and of all First Nations people across the land, really. Now, today, we have a pretty special episode, and one that I've been waiting to do for a long time. We're going to be discussing challenges to books, and specifically to comics in libraries. Now, looking from a distance, the current wave of challenges and bans the US is going through may seem alien to us. We are concerned about what's going on. We are concerned that teachers and librarians are being targeted and intimidated. We are concerned that comics, graphic novels, and books are being pulled off the shelves. Even titles that have won awards have received worldwide recognition and have been part of the curriculum for years are being challenged. We've been concerned for months, and we have shared our support and solidarity with our American colleagues through our social media before. But of course, to be concerned from a distance is not enough. While we may feel that what's happening has nothing to do with us in Australia, we know that very often these kind of actions get exported to other countries. It could happen in Australia, and we should not be complacent. We're also aware that while we don't suffer the kind of challenges that we're seeing in the US, there are still issues in Australia. Teachers and librarians who are prejudiced against comics, parents who question their kids and insist that they read a real book, just to mention a couple of examples. We wanted to reach out to our friends in the American Library Association's Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable. Specifically, we wanted to talk with members of the Addressing Comic Book Bands and Challenges Committee. I'm happy to say that we had a great discussion with Amy Wright, Chair of the Committee, together with Cara Baker, Sean Norton, and Julia Lanta. Now, James Baker from the Athenaeum Library in Melbourne uh, also helped me with the discussion, and uh, it was great to have him on board. Now, this is a wide-ranging and, we believe, a very interesting and relevant conversation. We start hearing first from Amy Wright. She's a public history PhD student at Carleton University. I believe she's just finished. Um, her PhD in Canada, and she's studying the history of comic book censorship and its impact on vocational practice in schools and libraries around ideas of good reading. So, um, Amy, uh, I know that you your PhD um, was uh, looking at uh, the 1950s a lot and looking at the past and uh, censorship back then, especially of comics. Um, can you tell us uh, about what happened in the 1950s and what were the what was the situation there, the context and the the bans or censorship? 
So I think, um, especially once you start to talk about the situation of the 1950s and sort of talk about the now, you see a lot of similarities. So a lot of global upheaval. Um, you also have even a pandemic. Uh, polio was huge, of course, in post-World War II. And sort of similar to the fear and worry about kids with comic book bands of today, one of the things I think that's untalked about over the 1950s and the polio epidemic is that it um, uniquely impacted children. Um, so there is already a huge fear. Um, you have global upheaval post-World War II. You have so many um, countries, especially in the former British Commonwealth, trying to find their footing. Um, in Canada, it's a huge nation building period. Um, I, from what I know of Australian history, a similar sort of movement, uh, trying to figure out um, what Australia is as a country separate from Great Britain, while also maintaining a lot of those professional um, and educational ties. So I would say that there was a lot of like percolating um, uh, concerns about comics. Uh, this is going back to like the late 1930s, early 1940s. Um, in the US, uh, you have uh, Sterling North, who's a critic who's publishing in Chicago, who's talking about the problems in comics going back to 1940. The Catholic Women's League actually had a huge problem about comics and other salacious literature um, back uh, to the late 1930s. So all of these things are sort of going on in the backgrounds. But then post-World War II, things really hit um, a fever pitch, if you will. And I think like today, it feels like um, a slow moving boulder that all of a sudden really speeds up and the momentum just sort of seems to catch on out of nowhere. So um, interestingly, most people aren't aware. They'll talk about the censorship hearings in the US of 1954. So these are televised, uh, the US Senate subcommittee hearing on juvenile delinquency in comic books. And it's a big deal that it's televised because television is still relatively new. Um, I mean, television didn't come to Canada until the early 1950s in the US. It's like late 1940s, but the ability for people to own a television, right, is still quite cost prohibitive. So something being broadcast live is a pretty big deal. And, you know, so many of the quotes coming out of the 1954 hearings, um, they're very, they're very targeted. Like comic books will turn your child into a juvenile delinquent, into a sexual deviant. And so obviously there's a lot of fear, um, but it actually goes back a little further. So in Canada, we had legislation introduced in 1949 actually, which added crime comics to the Canadian Criminal Code Obscenity Clause. Um, so crime comics is actually an umbrella term and they just sort of grouped everything under that. And we do see a lot of similar stuff happening right now um, with discussions of obscenity, any sort of comics or things that people deem objectionable, they're calling pornographic or obscene. So there's um, not a lot of specific use of the term. So this is going on. And um, so the Canadian, if you will, example um, was quite well known in the US. So there was actually a lot of correspondence going on between concerned community groups in Canada, in the US and globally. So, I mean, the UN actually has um, a special conference on juvenile health and the concern about comic books and other media in 1952. They consider comic books like a worldwide problem. There's various resolutions passed by educational groups um, all throughout, like on a global scale. <laughs> um, I mean, in the UK, you have similar movement against horror comics and the National Council of Teachers was one of those. So um, 
I think a lot of times when we reflect back, a lot of people remember Wortham and his incredibly bombastic testimony of 1954, but they forget that Wortham was actually part of a very large network um, of transnational uh, concerns constituents about the dangers of comic books. Um, so this is percolating globally, like late 1940s through the 1950s. And one of the things that my research has shown is this really continued in a lot of educational um, community organizations well through the 1950s and into the 1960s. And especially importantly for discussions of now, a lot of people who were quite large stakeholders in these discussions of the 1950s were themselves very prominent um, within professional organizations. So these were people who taught at library schools, who taught in educational faculties. And especially when we're talking about you know, the former British Commonwealth and even in the US, we're talking about the beginning of professional associations, the beginning of um, graduate programs in education and librarianship. So the exponential impact of a professor in librarianship or education who had a problem in comic books was pretty profound. Um, so in like Canadian examples, a lot of the people I found who were organized and these censorship groups, they were people who founded library schools in Canada, people who served as Canadian Library Association presidents. And so one of the things I'm looking at now is sort of how that has continued um, in other locations, but I just think it's worth noting that everything that happened in the past was far larger than we realized and has tendrils that continue to impact the present. You you mentioned that there are there were a lot of people there, the librarians and um, you know and people from high positions. What what's the difference now, at the moment? You know, is there a, is, is there any difference now in the way that libraries and librarians have reacted, or you know, <laughs> is there some positives there or not? I think yes and no. I, I think um, one thing that we continue to battle with as a profession um, is how politically active we should be and how we see ourselves. I think what's interesting back then is when we talk um, sort of history of librarianship or education, a word that gets a phrase that gets bandied about is neutral. Um, Knowing how many librarians and library um, teachers were active in the comic censorship movement of the 1950s, I think it's safe to say that libraries and schools were never neutral. Um, I mean, this is not to mention, you know, we have librarians and educators active in like eugenics and residential schools. Like there's a lot of our vocational history that we don't talk about enough. Um, so I do think that we may not have people being as outwardly you know, politically outspoken. Um, nobody wants to be like, hey, I'm a fan of censorship. <laughs> um, but I do think what we see internally now is that impulse to kind of guard against children, um, to, you know, um, protect children. I think that that is still implicit in a lot of professional practice, um, especially amongst people with certain pedagogical training. I would say, the other side and the thing that I'm happiest about is like the rise of things like critical librarianship. I think finally we're trying to turn a more critical eye to our professional practice. Um, you know, people looking at things like vocational awe and you know, how we ourselves need to be more, not just critical, but 
all of the policies and practice we put into place should be moving targets. They should be active, they should be changing, and they should be reflective of community needs. So I do think what we're seeing at play right now is a big professional, I don't want to call it a schism because that sounds, <laughs> but there's definitely a professional tension going on for, for pro and for con. And um, definitely for now, I think for us fighting for comics, there we exist. Like, in the 1950s, there were educators um, who were using comics in the classroom and a lot of their voices were drowned out. Like they weren't networked. They didn't have a huge community of people to draw upon. I think now, you know, we have the growth in comic studies. Uh, we have people who are studying visual narratives across disciplines. We have comics librarianship organizations in multiple countries. So. I do think one of the positives of now is there's more networked, there's more discussion, and you have such a rise in popularity in comics, similar to the 1950s, but I think a greater recognition that these are huge, important parts of our cultural history. I think it's, um, it's really encouraging to see um, organizations like the Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable uh, that are uh, you know, championing comics and uh, uh, doing this kind of work. And uh, when um, this wave of uh, challenges and bans started to come out and I saw all the chat on Twitter, uh, you know, everything being reported on Twitter, it was great to see this initiative and uh, this uh, committee that you formed. Um, can anyone talk about you know how did this group come about? Uh, how um, you know this committee and uh, how did you organize yourselves? And you know how did it happen? And uh, what was your brief initially? And then maybe how how it evolved or. This committee was struck, obviously, following all of the bans and challenges. Um, a lot of people, obviously, with Mouse, that was a big tipping point. But another huge point was uh, Jerry Craft's New Kid getting pulled from schools. Uh, I mean, New, Ca New Kid is the first graphic novel to win the Newbery Award. And so it is kind of crazy <laughs> that you have a book like this and then people pulling it off the shelves. Um, you know, several of Jerry Craft's school visits were canceled. Um, and so the committee, so this was initiative um, really spearheaded by Matthew No um, during his presidency and Moni Barrett, who was at the time president-elect, who's now our current president, um, that we should have a more active presence responding to this. I think not just with comics, but in general, as a profession, sometimes librarianship isn't as active as we could be. So the whole purpose was to really be more active, more engaged, and really to be prepared to meet these challenges. And so Matthew and Moni were also kind, but we're like, oh, hey, Amy, <laughs> you're now studying this in graduate school. <laughs> Maybe you should start this. Um, so that was the initial spark. Um, and the initial impulse was really to actually give people practical tools to fight stuff and to pull together a great, amazing team of committee volunteers who all had practical experience meeting these challenges. So uh, maybe Kara, Julia, and Sean, if you wanna talk about why you thought to volunteer for the committee and some of this um, sort of benefits that you've seen from our first little bit. Julia Lanta is Assistant Director of Exeter Public Library in Exeter, New Hampshire. 
She is also currently the co-chair of the New Hampshire Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. So New Hampshire is one of our teeny tiny states in America. And it's also one of the whitest states in the United States. Almost 93% of New Hampshireites are white. Um, and the reason I joined this committee isn't because of the demographics of my state, but because of what was voted on by our state members. Um, we had a law passed that has been coined the Divisive Concepts Law in New Hampshire, which basically says that you can, in short, do not train or advocate that a person or a group is inherently oppressive, superior, inferior racist, or sexist. Train and treat all equally and without discrimination. But how this has been interpreted um, is that parents and teachers and librarians are pulling books off of the shelves because they're afraid that they're going to be seen as divisive materials, um, especially things involving slavery or LGBTQIA interests. So when I saw that this committee was forming, um, and I have a special love coming up as a teen librarian of graphic novels and know how they are so essential for young readers in learning a love of reading. I just knew that this was the perfect committee to join so I can fight back. There's no other way of saying it. We have to start fighting back. Next, we hear from Cara Baker. She's a high school librarian in El Paso, Texas, about five miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. She has worked in several libraries from municipal to university and is fascinated by the similarity of needs at each level. Censorship has always been of a particular interest and the recent trends in Texas to ban and challenge different books has led her to become a member of the Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable. Let me tell you about where I'm from a little bit. Um, I'm in Texas and... Um, my school where I'm sitting right now, I can look out my window and I can see Mexico. So I'm a very different part of Texas than the majority of Texas. And I think that if you're reading anything or seeing anything out of the United States about book banning, then you probably think that everyone in my state is illiterate because they're, that's all we're hearing is, you know, now this county is doing this and this senator is making this banned list. And <clears throat> so for me, um, it actually started because we had a challenge of a book on my campus. It wasn't actually a graphic novel. It was The Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I was very disturbed by the way my administrators handled the, the process of challenging the book and then what the next steps were. And it also just seemed kind of um, almost serendipitous to me that I was on social media around the same time and saw this call for this roundtable, specifically in talking about graphic novels and comics, um, when we had just had that ban. And then right down the street from me, um, one of our librarians uh, had genderqueer uh, be pulled from her shelf because of um, the way, again, her administration reacted to it. Um, she receives hate 
phone calls still to this day, like threats from people. I don't know what's helped her have the strength to stay in her job. But for me, this becomes a committee for us to create good, strong resources for people like my teacher who had his book challenged or this librarian in my community so that, that there is guidance and that the, the people who are not trained and the people who don't have good sense of librarianship or even sometimes literature aren't making the decisions for us. Next, we hear from Sean Norton, a collection development librarian for the Jacksonville Public Library in Florida. From shelving books to branch manager, They've held a variety of jobs in various libraries since the age of 17. Specializing in graphic novels for all ages and adult fiction, Sean also reviews comics for No Fly, No Tights and Diamond Bookshelf. So I'm Sean and I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. And if you're thinking about, you know, bannings and challenging government in, in the United States, you might think of Texas first. You might think of Florida first. It's kind of a toss up. Um, and I am a uh, public librarian. I used to be in youth services, uh, children and teen, and then I transitioned into collection development, and I specialize in graphic novels. Um, really, I, I just think comics are cool, and everybody should have the opportunity to read them because they have lots of different subjects and genres, and part of that is you know, promoting my own collections and making sure that people know about that. But part of it is also keeping it on the shelf, making sure that these things aren't taken away by the few. Um, and I've actually been on, been part of the, the challenge material process at my library for about five years now. And I Re I helped rework the procedures that my library handles these with uh, about a year and a half ago, right as the, the bannings and challenges were starting to pop up all over. And I've, I've had it tested a couple times. And so far we've, we've come out ahead with, you know, nobody, nobody's been, you know, suing us or calling law for law enforcement on us or anything like that. And the books are staying on the shelf. Um, I, I joined this committee because I I have that experience and this is something that I can offer both to you know my users, my patrons, and also to librarianship as a whole. Like if if there's a reason I have, you know, years of handling challenge materials and, and years of buying graphic novels and oh man, decades of reading them and making my own, uh, then I, I guess this is it and I should, I should do what I can. Obviously, it's not just graphic novels that are being challenged. It's not just comics. Books are being challenged as well. But I, I'd like to know if, if you have a bit of an idea of, you know, um, whether comics are being challenged uh, more than books uh, or not. And and if they are being challenged more, you know, if you can go to some of the reasons why you, you think that they may be uh, challenged more? 
Um, maybe I'll start off y'all and then we can go through and talk about personal experiences. Cause I think there's probably, there's, I think two things happening. There's sort of official lines and then there's like what we've all observed internally. So um, officially the American Library Association Office of Intellectual Freedom tracks, you know, and they have been tracking for the past more than 20 years challenges. And some of the trends are if a book has been previously challenged, if a book is directed or perceived to be read by children, and if a book has quote-unquote diverse content. Um, <laughs> so that could be any, you know, non-white, non-heteronormative, non, you know, two-parent, you know, heteronormative family values sort of thing. Um, along with that, another trend that has always been noted is that anything that is a visual narrative tends to be challenged more often than not. So alongside with comics and graphic novels popping up on bands and challenge lists, uh, we have uh, picture books have always been popping up. Um, one that has been particularly challenged over the past decade is Entango Makes Three, um, about the penguins who start a family. Um, we also see um, nonfiction books that have a lot of visual content. So um, Beyond Magenta, for example, was a fantastic nonfiction book um, about queer experiences, you know, for, for teen audiences with teen narrators. And that has been one that has popped up on a lot of um, the shelves. I think part of the reason is, um, and this goes back, I think, to the 1950s, is that anything with visuals is is powerful. Like there's a reason why um, visual narratives have been so enduring and are so popular. And they're also something in which people can more readily make snap judgments or feel emotionally invested or emotionally, you know, have an emotional reaction to. Um, and I would say one of the things that we are seeing with comics is that a lot of these are a related to the visuals, like with genderqueer particular illustration. Um, I will say just lastly, on a professional level, I think what's hard is we don't know if comics are being more or less banned or challenged because I think comics still suffer from so much internal censorship and are some of the first things either pulled off the shelves or things that are already not advocated for enough in the library. But I'd love to hear my amazing colleagues have so many, many frontline experiences that they can draw from. I think that, well, let me back up. In the challenges that I've handled in my public library in Jacksonville, Florida, um, comics are challenged, but they're not necessarily the most challenged. But almost everything is challenged on the basis of think about the children, um, even if the the items in question aren't for children, you know, we'll get movies that are challenged because a child might see the cover on display or, you know, we, someone would challenge a political book because libraries shouldn't be political, you know. Um, but I do see, I do see comics in that. And I do see more of that as a trend that I've been following online. And I think some of it is that the the folks who are doing these bans and challenges are getting more organized. But I also think it's because comics are diversifying themselves, especially over the last oh, 15, 20 years or so. Um, there are lots more 
people of color in comics now than there were 20, 30 years ago. There are lots more queer comics being published in mainstream, not necessarily talking about underground zines. Those have always been around too, but you're getting big publishers, even non-traditional comics publishers like Scholastic. And the, the more of this content that's out there, it's great for readers because everybody is seen, everybody can get exposed to new ideas, but it's also pretty good fodder for the kinds of people who like to challenge books. I agree wholeheartedly with what both Emmy and Sean are sharing about uh, it being easy uh, to specifically say, like, I can see that that's offensive. So that's something that I want out of the the library or away from children or, you know, that is offensive to me visually. And you don't really have to to have the same kind of experience, right? If you're going to read something that is questionable or uncomfortable or even profane, like it's not directly in your face. So I think just the very graphic novel, uh, graphic element of being a graphic novel or a comic book, you know, lends itself to being more readily um, <clears throat> challenged or questioned. I also think that, especially from an academic setting, I think that comic books and graphic novels become a very easy target because they're not seen to have very much literary merit. And so, you know, if we're asking students to check out books or, you know, a teacher comes in to do um, a, a book tasting or something like that, you know, the, the oftentimes we hear the teacher <laughs> tell us, you know, but I want them to check out a real book, you know, well, <laughs> graphic novels, <laughs> all the elements of a real book also. And, you know, we have some excellent graphic novels that are adaptations of like boring canon classics that maybe kids would relate to a lot better if they saw it in a friendlier format than if they were just reading a cold book off the shelf with 900 pages and no pictures. Next, we hear from Jane Baker, a librarian at the Athenaeum Library in Victoria, in Melbourne, and member of the Alia Graphic team. And um, he joins us for the conversation. I have seen um, a few places now um, the graphic novel adaptation of something getting challenged and the non-graphic novel one being free to still stay in the shelves. The one that I saw most recently was um, Anne Frank's Diary, was the graphic novel adaptation was challenged, um, but the original diary wasn't. Um, uh, Amy's just said in The Handmaid's Tale, why do you think, like, obviously um, this graphic nature, but um, is there anything else to it? And how can you kind of deal with that duality of, of what people are uh, actually um, challenging? I mean, in the case of a lot of these classics, the the original books were challenged too. They're maybe not being challenged this year because the graphic adaptation is new and it's shiny. But, I mean, The Diary of Anne Frank has been challenged many times, and Handmaid's Tale has been challenged many times. And I think it's, you know, partially it's the the visual effect that the others have been discussing. I think part of it is just that the adaptations are new and are showing up in the news. 
It's funny. I, I do agree with Sean's take, but I also think that the old adage a picture's worth a thousand words is very much a cliche, but very true in this instance. It is so common now to have parents go to um, students um, uh, to SAU meetings with an image, one image from a graphic novel, you know, the rape scene from The Handmaid's Tale, which is very graphic in the novel. You see it literally. And they use that out of context. Don't haven't read the rest of the book. And that's their argument for getting that book banned. So there is a bit of they're using graphic novels specifically because it grabs people's attention. Um, my recent challenge for our library didn't go anywhere. Um, I always really want to emphasize challenges are not bans. Um, but the ch- we had Check, Please, um, the number one um, hockey book. And the parent held up a scene where they were swearing and um, like a good hockey team should (laughs) Amy from Canada is going, Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the parent said, how can you corrupt children like this? Where are all the normal books? So I I just love, I love it when I get openings like that to discuss (laughs) why we have collection management. Uh, But, but again, that photo is such, that picture is such a a attention grabber and it makes the news. I I just wanted to add one of uh, the best challenges I got in New York was, do you know, Jason Reynolds book when I was the greatest um, Ergie and James, if you're not for, immediately familiar, I'll, I'll send you a picture of the cover. It's an awesome, very eye-catching cover. It has a rainbow crocheted gun because it's about gun violence and it's against gun violence. <laughs> we had a challenge in New York for that because a parent was like, this is promoting gun violence. <laughs> um, I think the good thing was we had a very strong challenge policy in place. This is when I was working on the school library partnership program. And so this challenge came through the schools. And so it went to the office of library services and part of their challenge process. This is something we've been talking about too, the committee is with a really good challenge policy, a lot of these challenges should be dead in the water because one of the first questions on this challenge policy was, Hmm, have you read this book? (laughs) And first that it's very first in the flow chart and if you didn't bypass that done if you had read the challenge what specifically page number reason what is the reason for this and then the other thing was this is what our collection development policy is what in your opinion goes against the collection development policy because in the case of when i was the greatest i mean jason reynolds you know spent a lot of time in new york um, so in many ways, New Yorkers consider him a local author. He's somebody who's done a lot of work with the school system. It's an award-winning book. What is your issue with this book in terms of our collection development policy? And so I think that can really help getting at a lot of the out-of-context uh, challenges that we see. And there are so, so very many of them. Um, but I also think, as we've been talking about, so many of these bands and challenges, especially around comic books, they're shining a spotlight on a lot of uncomfortable things in our profession around perceptions and especially discriminatory attitudes around reading and what constitutes quote unquote real reading. Um, I mean, we still hear people who are, you know, advocates for audiobooks. There are still, you know, a lot of library and school settings in which kids are told that's not real reading. Uh, kids are told that 
you know, reading online is not real reading, that reading in short bursts is not real reading. And none of this is educationally research-based. <laughs> a lot of it has to do around perceptions and a very much hierarchy and very much a class-based argument about what we perceive reading to be. And um, it's a problem. Then I was just gonna add, James, to, to kind of capstone like what everybody has said, and you know, especially to bring back to Sean's argument earlier that we have to protect the children, right? And I think that there just is such a large misconception that comic books are for children. And so there are juvenile readers who are there. So we have to make sure that nothing in there is going to be corrective or to, to sully their minds or, or take away any of their innocence. Thank you. Um, and I aware that I kind of cut off Julia's answer for the previous question with with that question. Um, I just wanted to jump in while it was as it was mentioned. But um, yeah, um, do you want to um, if you still want to answer the Yogi's question, Julia? Can you remind me what the question was? <laughs> do I even remember it myself? That is uh, why co why comics are banned or challenged, or do we think they're more banned and challenged, and why is that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also think it has to do with, um, in terms of bias, there the generational bias we need to also acknowledge in our own profession. I find myself having to train every new librarian about why graphic novels are important so they can train the public about why they're important. And I love pointing out how parts of the children's brains light up in both regions of the hemispheres when they read all those really great graphics, ah, graphics again, um, that you can use to educate people. And I think that goes to just that bias that Sean talked about that we have a bias against graphic novels and audiobooks, anything that isn't quote unquote, I'm hating to use the word again, normal. Um, and we've got to fight that concept. These challenges and bans, I mean, you know, it's been happening for years, yes, but we seem to be in a current wave of it. Um, and it seems, uh, at least from a distance, it seems to me like it's been quite an organized campaign. Um, so is it really an organized campaign uh, and are there signs of that? And I think, uh, poaching your question, James, uh, uh, you know, what are the warning signs for challenges starting? Are there other sectors that we should be uh, paying attention to as, uh, you know, precursors to library challenges? Speaking entirely for myself and my experiences, Yes, it, it can be organized. Not every challenge is part of an organized campaign, but lots of them are, especially right now in school libraries, we're seeing that more. There are groups like, uh, I don't even want to say their name, uh, like Mom for, Moms for Liberty, um, who, yeah, they're heavily online, they are very coordinated, and they're going to school board meetings, and they're going to library meetings, and they're showing up with their one picture out of context and, and yeah, absolutely. Not every challenge that I've handled this year has been part of that, but there's definitely something to that. And for warning signs, I look at 
local politics and education. Um, if people are suddenly paying a lot more attention or politicizing races like school board um, or superintendent or things like that, that's a pretty good sign that you're going to be looking at some library challenges soon. Um, and I, I think that uh, intersection of politics, education, and just the freedom to read is where a lot of this wave is coming from. Um, I think for a lot of us, maybe whether or not we realized it, one of the warning bells was all of the protests of drag queen story times going back five to 10 years. Um, I know Moni Barrett, who's the current president of GNCRT, had quite a serious uh, protest at one of her libraries a few years back during drag queen story time. And it was you know, not just about the content, it was uh, Moni um, herself was, you know, sort of personally uh, the subject of quite a bit of abuse and scrutiny for, you know, organizing a drag queen story time. And so I think it's important to talk about what's happening in terms of content challenges and even in terms of how we capture data and how we build collaborative efforts to push back we need to be aware that these are content challenges. These are not book challenges. Um, and as Sean was saying, we do, again, I think, you know, we try to, as a profession, we think we are politically passive or politically neutral. And yet, especially in so many parts of the library, we have to fight for our budget every year. So even from that, like we are not, we're not a politically neutral organization. We have to sort of justify our place in the community and, what we stock on our shelves and the programs we host are also testament and reflective of what's going on in our communities. And so I think to be aware of that kind of stuff that's happening, um, I think even alongside the drag queen story times, um, you know, there had been, again, five to 10 years ago, uh, a lot of things around summer reading programs and parents, uh, you know, participating in open carry coming to the library. And these are a lot about, um, issues of individual versus sort of collective rights and sort of where, what is the place of the library and sort of where our particular parents' role and how they see it's not just about their individual child, it's about them perceiving to be child-saving for a whole community. So um, yeah, I think just the, to look at these as a huge swell of content challenges and a real push and pull of individual versus collective rights and freedoms. And I'm sure in Florida, it's very much like it is in Texas right now. It's just so politicized. You know, everything is, is you're either on the right or the left, you're either red or blue. <clears throat> and it's, um, my state right now is disrespecting just about everything about me. You know, it disrespects my gender, disrespects my um, rights to think for myself and choose for myself um gives my my husband like property rights over the things that we own over me like it's it's a mess and it's very um concerning because to me it feels new um in the way that we're handling it you know like it, it seems like the crazier it gets the more exhausted we are to fight it so the more normal it becomes or we kind of settle for what what we can fight for or what we can tolerate um I also think that 
there's just such an amazing disrespect for the profession of librarians because, you know, in the state of Texas right now, they're pulling all of these books off of shelves and then they're having experts look at them to put them back on the shelves. Well, who's more of an expert than the librarian? You know, my campus secretary doesn't have a a degree in library science, you know, Uh, she doesn't understand like children's pedagogy and how to use that in the classroom and stuff like that. But that's the person that is sometimes in some of these smaller districts, that's the person who's ultimately making these choices about whether these books go back on the shelves or not. But Kara, we also have to put a little bit of the blame on ourselves. Um, I know that I just started up with another um, co-chair intellectual freedom committee that was defunct in our state. And when I went looking at other states, I found that many were defunct. And um, I, I think that COVID exhausted a lot of people worldwide and our industry was just the same as everybody else. We were tired. We were losing people. And, um, Unfortunately, this snuck in during that time as well, or heightened. Um, New Hampshire is proud to say that we are the live free or die is our motto state. So with that (laughs) live free or die gumption, I think that when people were staying at home because of COVID, they started actually paying attention about what was being taught in schools. They started actually noticing what their children were reading. And a lot of them were concerned that what their children wanted to read, read voraciously, were books that were against what they felt um, their cultural normative should be. Black Lives Matter came up during COVID. Um, LGBTQIA, we mentioned, Amy, the um, story times. There is a concept in America that the good old times are um, being pushed out. And unfortunately, that didn't start at libraries or schools. (laughs) And if you talk to the youth actually reading the book, these are the books they want to read. Um, I just got a list from our uh, local school system of, of 15 books that are being reconsidered on the shelves And they were all books that I had done for book group books because they're the books the kids love to read. Um, Books like Angie Thomas, Thomas's books and um, uh, New Kid. So I think there's this clash of cultural too. The young kids want this. They want to read this. And the adults are shocked that they're for these things. You bring up an excellent point. And I think about this challenge that I had with this parent for Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I really searched my soul about what was so disturbing to this parent about it. And here's where I finally landed. If this parent had diligently been doing story time with her child and reading picture books and spending time with them, And then, like most parents do, kind of let them graduate into the library and start to read books on their own and not do like the family sit down or bedtime stories any longer. And then the next book she ever picked up from like, you know, Peter Rabbit or, you know, Pete the Cat or anything like that 
was the purpose of being a wallflower, then I can really see then how she was shocked to see what the difference between those two pieces of literature are, right? And not being really prepared, thinking that children's literature or young adult literature doesn't have these really heavy concepts that our teens are frankly dealing with. And, and so just, I think the parent was just ignorant and unprepared in knowing what was in other books. I think if she had read like five other YA books, she would have been like, oh, that's, that's fine. That's nothing. Oh. Um, so one of the things that you've mentioned quite a lot um, is your own states and how that's affecting how as a the um, this nation spanning group how do you manage the work across all of these different states that might have different attitudes might even have different laws regarding censorship how does that work it's something that we are looking at because, I mean, you have national laws in the U.S. And so, it, of course, the American Library Association is the accrediting body for Canada, the United States, Mexico. So it does, even though it's disproportionately American focused, like it does professionally even cover Canada and Mexico. So but there are so many obviously different um, iterations in terms of law. Um, one thing that we were looking at going forward is with our toolkit to continue to add to it, to call out different political and legal resources based on state by state. So for example, the Amer um, ACLU, which is the American uh, Civil Liberties Union, um, they have state chapters as well. So they're a national organization, but they have state chapters as well. And you are seeing a lot of their state chapters uh, be very active. Uh, the ACLU in Virginia, for example, was active in the recent obscenity case with genderqueer. Um, of course, CBLDF, because they do have lawyers on staff, but this is something that we're very aware of. And it's something that I see a lot with Canadian libraries that's very interesting is that um, we talk a lot about, and you, I've heard Canadian librarians talk about freedom of speech. And technically in Canada, we don't have freedom of speech. It's actually called freedom of expression. And it's a different legal concept under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I think these are the different political and legal nuances that we need to be aware of and we need to know what our rights are and we need to know as a profession that we do need to know what the law is. Um, and that is, be I don't, I think for a lot of us, like going through library school, uh, law and legal information is not something that is talked about, even though, frankly, it is something that we deal with so much in terms of librarianship. I mean, think about um, different parameters around library card policies. Like, what do you define as an adult card? Like, what are your policies around borrowing for teen cards? I mean, so much of these child saving behaviors very much intersect with different like library card policies. Like, if a teen is borrowing stuff, like what is your library's policy? Can their parent ask what the child is borrowing? What do you define as a child? What do you define as a teen? How do you deal with kids who live in care? Because none of us want to talk about that, but a lot of kids live in the foster care system or may live with extended family members or people who are not their legal guardians. People may be, you know, um, unofficially legally emancipated. Like there are so many aspects that we were like, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> um, and so I think this brings up again, 
a lot of professional stuff that a lot of us are pretty unprepared to have conversations around, but we need to. Um, you know, I know in Canada, what has been really good with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee is that it's forced us to have a lot of these conversations um, and a lot of aspects of social service that we weren't before. Um, I mean, just even about small things, like what do we do in terms of when we're asking for identification? Like how do we deal with people who may not have a permanent address? And just like, how are we presenting as a public service organization? And again, all of these are, <laughs> I think, coinciding. Um, but a lot of people are really unprepared, undertrained, or under-resourced. Um, you've heard all of us talk about lack of admin support or just, you know, feelings of exhaustion and lack of support. And I think that that's the hard thing. So um, our goal really going forward is to try to build out a lot of those tools and resources so that people don't have to do that work to find people that are legal um, uh, counterparts or experts that they can contact and ask for very specific information. At least in the United States, uh, because because individual states have such different laws uh, regarding everything, um, there there isn't a one size fits all solution that we can offer. Um, what we can do, and what we've been trying to do, is offer best practices and do what you can, but. It's more important, do what you can, but don't lose your job over it unless you feel it's absolutely something you have to do. Uh, something I said very early on in our meetings is, you know, live to fight another day. It's not every recommendation that we make is going to apply to every library. Even, you know, we're, we're talking public libraries, school libraries, academic libraries, uh, special libraries, anyone who collects comics. And, you know, even if we all had the same laws, we serve very different audiences. Mm. So it's here are some good ideas and take what you can use. And just shining a light on it making people think about it, just bringing it up, um, not doing what librarians have done historically, which is kind of, you know, look the other way. <laughs> what graphic novels? I don't know anything about graphic novels. You know, those are for kids. Those aren't, shouldn't be on the shelves. Uh, I, I think just by talking about it, we're doing something just by you folks inviting us to talk to you across the very large ponds, uh, is important. Um, the other thing that no one talks about is soft censorship that gets swept under the table and informing people what soft censorship is, reminding them that by not buying that book because it might be a little bit troubling or might get you, quote unquote, in trouble um, by adding it to the collection, uh, realize that you are making a choice. It's okay if you make that choice, but acknowledge that you are part of the soft censorship problem so um the next the next thing that i'd like to know because it's something that you've touched on a, a bit about and just then with us inviting you to to talk what can libraries in australia do and librarians um to help support um the libraries in the us and elsewhere that are facing these challenges um and how can we do that while still maintaining 
like energy to in case it uh, so that we're ready for potential challenges happening here i think the best thing is for people to figure out they're not alone um one of the i think the problems and a lot of these arguments has happened with a lot of like the new kid bands and challenges the parent groups were pulling them because they were worried and they're like from a parent perspective there's not a single parent perspective i think activating your parent organizations activating your community organizations to be stronger advocates of the library and to have a more invested role preemptively like get them excited about your collection have them see important connections between the graphic novels on your shelf and the work that they do i mean y'all are in melbourne you have such a great artistic scene in melbourne no but it's for them to see and like um i actually have friends i know from montreal who are originally from melbourne and they work in video games and to see this like the cross-disciplinary connections that we're not talking about comic books it's not i mean i love me captain america and black panther but it's not just superheroes it's this idea of visual narratives and this is such an international historical uh storytelling method you know and to really show the deep connections and um i think y'all are already doing such great advocacy work with all of the work that you've been doing um especially promoting australian comics and saying like these are all the different stories that are being told in this incredibly accessible yet very nuanced and emotionally um, resonating way um and to build that community support i think it also super helps to have a lot of best practices and like educational research that you can pull out of your pocket i mean one thing i've been sort of talking thinking about lately is for all of those libraries that are pulling gender queer off their shelves or other books like sex is a funny word um, which is a great nonfiction book for younger kids um, the american pediatric association has talked about the importance of gender affirming care it's part of like their best practice and it has been for years and i'm like as a profession that values ourselves at like following best practices and medical advice why wouldn't we be following the american pediatric association or in Canada, conversion therapy is actually against the law now. So why would we be giving a platform to speakers that are talking about gender-affirming care as something that is mutilation or abuse? I mean, isn't that against the law? <laughs> so I think also knowing that things have been changing and that there are resources and that there are advocates. And um, I think there's more people who care about these things or I like to think than there are people who are trying to dismantle these things. And I think the more that we can activate and reach out to each other, the better, so. I think we also have to, I, in America, there's this concept of like, this is the renaissance of the nerds. All of us who were reading graphic novels back in high school um, now are we have multi-million dollar Marvel movies being made and, you know, all those juggernauts. Comic Con went from this kind of in thing that all the geeks knew to now everyone is getting tickets to Comic Con in, in San Diego. So I think that we as librarians, and I'm sure this is the same case in Australia, that this is kind of a, a great time to be a nerd. Um, is that what you say? Is, is, is nerd an Australia thing? Okay. I'm saying James nod. So I think we should also realize that we have power as librarians. Um, in America, there's more libraries than there are Starbucks. 
there's a lot of Starbucks. So why aren't we <laughs> using that power by number, the power by nerd, and activating our people to get out there and fight for books, fight for graphics? Um, Amy, Amy, I'm not sure if you, you I, I, I know you've gone to Comic-Con, but I would love to see librarians on panels for large na- international conventions where we can have a platform to say, hey, you like reading these come out and defend them or else they might go away. I think getting people interested and invested in libraries is, I mean, it's important in general. It's just an important part of library work, but especially for comics and challenges, you know, there, I talk to so many people who don't know that libraries have comics. I talk to people who, you know, I meet at, comic shops and they just buy everything you know like hey would you like to save $50 a month by signing up for a library card I mean I I signed two people up for electronic cards to read books on their tablet at a Magic the Gathering tournament this weekend I it just you know never never stop talking about it if you care and you'll get other people to care too, or you'll annoy them and they'll leave. One of the two. I also think you just hear our stories and know that when you're hearing these crazy bands out of the United States, that it's not everywhere and it's not everyone. And we we are fighting the good fight for our patrons to read what they should have the right to read. And it's not not everybody has lost their mind. You you mentioned before, like uh, you know, that there's that that usual thing of um, uh, we need to save the kids, you know, when they're targeting comics. But of course, adult comics are there, and they're also being challenged. And uh, I think uh, it was mentioned before as well. Collection development policies, in my view, are absolutely essential and central uh, to to tackling these issues. With all the work that you've done in the last few months, uh, you probably also have other recommendations. So maybe if you want to start by talking about the importance of collection development policies uh, and, and then about some of the other recommendations that you came up with. I can kick us off, but then do you all want to chime in? Um, so. The first recommendation that we launched, uh, we have a checklist. Uh, we call it our be prepared, what to do when a challenge comes. Um, and most importantly, the checklist has three sections. And we talk about what you can do before a challenge, what you can do during a challenge, and how to sort of recoup and prepare to fight again after a challenge. Um, but especially in the before a challenge, comes section, um, some of the biggest recommendations are take this opportunity to look at your collection development policy. Um, We have been, so we have our survey that we launched in the spring and it's been open since then. And we've heard from at this point, it'd be around 130 or 140 different library systems about their collection development challenge policies and their experiences dealing with comic book bans and challenges. And One of, maybe not surprising, but at least we have the data now, things that we've heard is how many libraries either 
don't have a readily accessible, um, well-known collection development policy or have not updated it recently. So um, if your collection development policy is more than three to five years old, you should update it. Um, not just for bans and challenges, but like the way we procure items has changed dramatically in the past three to five to 10 years. I mean, um, for comics especially, but like you should talk about digital resources and digital procurement or digital platforms for comics reading, but also to talk about that what authoritative review sources are is not just print journals, it's things like No Flying, No Tights, um, it's the Allographic blog. I mean, you all are reviewing comic books in Australia that we wouldn't have had reviewed. I mean, I think for international titles, going to experts in those countries is one of the best things. And also to write in that as library professionals, we are also experts. So if a librarian has reviewed it and been like, this is a core part of the collection, like that should be written into your collection development policy. Um, it should be a living document. It should be a document that everybody knows and that helps support you do the work you do. It shouldn't be an impediment to the work. Um, alongside that is you should have a challenge policy or some libraries will call it their reconsideration policy. Some will use both, but you should have one. And that should be well organized and that should also be a living document. So if you go through a challenge policy and things don't work out so well, that should be an opportunity to revise your challenge policy and make things a little bit better going forward. Um, so, so those are the, some of the ones that um, we talked about in the checklist, but everyone, do you wanna have some recommendations of other things you think are important that came out and some things that we're working on now that you think are important to highlight? I just was going to say that in cooking your, whatever you decide is your collection development policy, I highly recommend you also cook how you're going to train everyone, develop that alongside. Um, one of the most basic tools you have is to listen, look up active listening, train your staff in it, and really let the person talk. Because oftentimes, most of these challenges, someone just wants to be heard. And if you allow them to talk, you'll, you might see the numbers of bands reduce a little bit because all they're looking for is a space and a non-reactive space. Um, there are ways that you can talk some and de-escalate people down from a challenge um, by simply letting them know that you're listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think that maybe 70% of challenges that I've, I've handled uh, that I've heard of are, they could have been solved by just listening or having some kind of conversation, you know, not talking over the person, but, you know, after they say their piece, you know, explain like, well, Maybe this isn't for you. Maybe this isn't for your family, but it is well-reviewed in these places and that's why we have it. And, you know, it's, it's okay to not like something. And, you know, sometimes it's not going to work, but most of the time, yeah, yeah, she's absolutely right. People just want to be heard. As for developing policies and procedures, um, the ALA's Office of Intellectual Freedom has an excellent page of, with policy examples, uh, best practices, uh, procedural notes, and 
I, I referred to that a lot when I was revising the procedures that my library uses, and I expect to do more as me and my, my coworkers are working on the policy now. Um, and I don't want to downplay the, the work that that office has done already on this. I think maybe I'm, I'm of two minds with what I'm about to say. Part of me feels very strongly that it's a good idea. And then part of me is like, no, literature should be for literature's sake. But even just to, to give kind of talking points or guidelines for what sorts of resources are valuable to what types of populations and maybe why. So that a librarian or a library staff can say, oh, well, we have several large print books because those are not only good for people who have sight impairments, but there are also studies uh, done that show that it helps uh, people with dyslexia read as well. Um, and then maybe to have those in various other collections, including graphic novels and comic books, so that it can just be kind of a, a easy guide to say, like, oh, well, these, these are why they're considered to be good and why we invest in them for our patrons. Kara, that's a, a great point that you also want to train in talking points and you want to focus that all your staff, no matter how small a page a volunteer knows what to say when they get approached because anyone driving a book cart, as we know, is staff, no matter what the level is. Um, and I think that a lot of librarians aren't comfortable with conflict. So having practice episodes doing, even if it's just like one-on-one -on -one training with each other, where you pretend to be a patron and working that out, um, I think that simple on-site training, it's, which is free, <laughs> you can do it on your own, really helps the whole what-if situations and just dialogue it out. Because we're readers, maybe we're not quite as eloquent speakers. I think it just, um, uh, one of the final talking points, and it's something that, I, we've probably been talking about this for like a decade to two decades, but just that we have a limited budget in most libraries and the goal should be, our collection should move. And statistically, <laughs> most collections, graphic novel and comic sections have some of the best return on investment of any collection in the library. Not to mention, I don't know if you all saw the article that Bridget Alverson had published after ALA annuals. This is like late June. And it was talking about how comic book and graphic novel sales are up 60%. <laughs> I mean, like, everyone is like, oh no, the death of reading. Oh no, the traditional books. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you are showing your reading prejudice right here because there are many parts of reading that are like going through the roof. Y'all just aren't paying attention to them. Um, and so I think just knowing some of those broader talking points, um, Kara, as you were talking, I was like, oh, these would be great infographics. Like if we could just have graphic design and like have these in different sections because there's there so many, um, I think, good talking points and influential talking points. And it's also knowing your audience. So if, if you're talking to a library board member or admin, I do think the financial argument is an important one to pull. Um, I mean, most school libraries, a lot of their circulation disproportionately, like 70%, depending on the school library, like it's 
comic books and graphic novels. Uh, most teen nonfiction, a lot that goes out, it's a lot of how to draw books or a lot of like infographic books. I mean, these are very popular books. Cool. And so, and some of those resources that you mentioned, um, they'd be available from the um, GNCRT website and um, uh, the different areas in that. So, yeah, cool. Um, so that's great, and we'll try and make sure we link that in the in the description when we put the the episode out and everything, so that people can can access it. Um, one of the things that you were, you were just mentioned, and I noticed it was mentioned earlier, um, that you said that someone um, said often spending a lot of time just telling new members, new staff members about um, about graphic novels and all, and how to work with the challenges, and it got me wondering how much. Um, work do you do with um, library courses? So librarian um, and library technician studies um, to try and make sure that people are coming out of those courses prepared for these sorts of things. Um, I can just uh, start us off. So this was actually a question on our survey. So before we even got started with the committee looking at professional development or what kind of resources to create, we wanted to really get a baseline of what kind of training do people have um, and what kind of training did that look like? Was it library school? Was it on the job training? This and that. Um, so overwhelmingly, <laughs> most of our survey respondents either have no training or minimal training um, for dealing with bans and challenges. Some um, reported some training in library school, um, but pretty theoretical. I think there's a lot of discussion, if there is in library school, around theoretical freedom to read, not so much the practicality of what it looks like, or even the actual legal history or the library history of what that's um, included. Um, quite a few of the respondents reported getting some on-the-job training, but it doesn't seem to be just, again, small sample size, but this is something we've been talking about and thinking about. It doesn't seem to be something that is often done, and I can say for most library school curriculums, it is not a required part of the curriculum. It may be something that people have taken as part of um, an optional class, but it is not a required part of most curriculum, and certainly not collection development in most curriculums. Maybe Kara, Julia, and um, Sean, do you want to talk about your experiences? Like, did you have training in library school? I, in library school, in, in graduate school, I did take courses on graphic novels and comics, uh, but it was more of a an overview of the materials. Like, you know, here are examples of the different genres, examples of different formats, you know, so we would be assigned a manhwa, a nonfiction, a, you know, and it wasn't really about challenges or content or copyright or any of that. Um, but I've always been very interested in things like copyright and hacking and censorship and it's just so I, I did a lot of personal reading and I took courses in undergrad. I was, I was an English major and I took courses in a department called American studies. Um, it was, I, and we would, I had a class on comics history and we talked about the code and how it impacted storytelling and 
creators and things like that. Um, so some of it is taught in school, in university, but it's not necessarily a part of library school. That's something I brought from undergrad. I worked in public libraries from an early adult age. Um, that was my first real job out of my, my family's house. And so I experienced um, what it was to see challenges and the way that my local librarians handled them uh, there, but I was, um, I was an aide at that time. Um, and then I went to work at the university library for our local university while I was finishing my bachelor's degree. And uh, if you had said a book was being challenged anywhere in that building, I think they would have just laughed and laughed and laughed because like in an academic library, you know, like any laissez-faire, right? Like anything can be there. And so um, then I went and I taught for 15 years as a, a public high school teacher uh, and then decided to come back to libraries. And so um, I haven't been out of library school, honestly, for very long. And it strikes me as we're having this discussion that I had to build budgets um, in library school and I had to build collections. And primarily I built like a graphic novel collection because that's something that I've been passionate about for a long time. Um, and then never did like their anything about those two things intersect or like this idea of like, you know, I have $30,000 I'm spending on a collection. Um, how should I spend that other than just picking all of the books I want? You know, never any thought to who is the audience or who um, might be offended or who might be reactionary to any of those things on my list. So um Mine just comes from personal experience. And then, of course, the ban that I had or the challenge that I had here um, last year that everyone in my district was completely unprepared for and had no idea how to proceed well through. So, no, that's my short answer is no, we didn't get any training. I did. I did at a graduate level. I'll be honest. Yay. <laughs> one out of two. <laughs> one out of three. I'm oh, sorry. Um, but the difference is I trained to be a teen librarian. And sadly, that subset of librarianship also is lacking in legitimacy, unfortunately, still. Um, it's that whole concept that Teens are aliens and no one but teen librarians know how to speak their language. Um, I will say, though, we only had about maybe a full week of studies on graphic novels for our teen librarian courses that I attended. Um, and it was always segregated. And manga was never mentioned once, um, which is primarily 60% of what my teens and our library right now, that's what they're reading. Um, in terms of challenges um, at the school level, no, we never ever mentioned that, not in managerial class and development. Nope, none of the classes. 
Um, but the good news, I, I will say, is that our state librarians seem to be trying to, to educate people um, across the states. Uh, that does seem to be happening now where they're opening up classes and practices because they see that as a, as a gap. So I think that is something that's slowly being acknowledged and rectified. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a problem on an educational level. We need to talk about it. I think this is why it's important the kind of work that uh, is being done with the roundtable, yeah, uh, in general, um, and uh, with this committee now, and uh, and in a, a small way because we're uh, we're a very small group in Australia, but in a small way as well. Uh, what, what we're doing, uh, I guess, you know, raising the profile of things and uh, doing um, advocating, you know, for it. And for it was interesting, actually, this year, which took me completely by surprise. Uh, one of my, uh, well, a few of my colleagues, actually, were, were doing a, an ALIA course. So ALIA is our organization here in Australia. And as they were doing this course, one of them said, Yurgi, you're mentioned here. I'm like, what? So uh, actually an article that I wrote about, I don't know, two, three years ago that was published in a journal uh, um, and that I had completely forgotten about, and it's not even on our blog. We still need to put it on our blog. Uh, uh, they, uh, they added it as part of the course material, you know, and I thought, well, that's interesting. So, you know, someone obviously thought that this was valuable and they added it here. And it's specifically about comics and how important comics are for, uh, for reading and developing literacy. I, I think the, it's great to see these kind of initiatives, uh, all of us, because hopefully, you know, w we can start changing, uh, things. So, we should probably be wrapping up, uh, but in wrapping up, if you can talk a little bit, kind of summarize the kind of things that you've done, uh, um, that you've done this year, and you know what's in the future. Because I, I think Amy mentioned that now this is going to be a permanent committee or something like that. We just need to do what we're doing right here which is get the word out, talk with as many librarians as we can um, across the globe, really, and get them to talk about this and to also highlight our toolkit. Um, I do feel that it is not a one-size-fits-all situation, but it's the closest we can get to that. Um, and as long as we start these conversations um, and grow them, I think that's the essential thing is... Um, to keep this momentum moving forward. And um, thank you guys for inviting us. This is a wonderful first step for us. Um, and also let us know if we can help you. This is a two-way street because we're here to support you. And I think that's the thing I wish that people got out of this endeavor. Librarians, you're never alone. We're, we love to help. We love to share knowledge. I think also I've gotten some ideas um, about what direction she would, we should be taking from this very conversation, you know, like this idea of <clears throat> in our toolkit to have like what other people can do to help or how we can be helpful 
to other people in different regions or countries or areas that are experiencing uh, bans and challenges for graphic novels. Uh, the idea of, you know, outreach and training and, you know, talking in these, these librarian courses about the importance of this type of literature and who they serve. And I, I thank you guys not only for the, the opportunity to be here and talk with you and meet you and, and talk through something that I care very much about, but also thank you for helping me see some of these things as our next steps as well. And just uh, say to sort of wrap up, I think everything that Julia and Kara were saying, just to continue the conversations going, um, one of the things that we've heard from the survey and even just based on the feedback we've gotten from presentations like this is people are looking for very concrete tools. So we're even talking about doing a series of webinars, um, not just on bands and challenges, but also very concretely even offering kind of a workshop on collection development and talking about what, let's look at your collection development policy, especially now that our metadata and cataloging committee has their best practices document. How are ways that those can actually complement each other and we can really build advocacy for comics and graphic novels as part of our collection and be proactive about that. Um, and again, I think drawing more attention to intersections with other group, community agencies, and really actively building those partnerships, um, especially with legal groups um, and figuring out um, what our rights are and to empower people to know that they have these rights and that these are something that we should be more proactive about in librarianship. Thank you so much for uh, for uh, joining us and um, for um, talking to, to Australian librarians and all this through, through us and it's, um, yeah, been been a fantastic chat. Wish it was on a more pleasant topic, but uh, pleasant, yeah, <laughs> uh, fantastic chat nonetheless. Um, and I and I love the idea of um, librarians. You're never alone. I like something that can be either uplifting or the tag for a horror film. Um, so, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening to this special episode. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of it. We certainly did think this is a very, very important issue that we're facing these days, um, certainly in the U.S., and something that, uh, as I said before, even though it seems distant and alien to us, something that's really, really important. We should show solidarity with our colleagues in the U.S., and something that uh, hopefully doesn't get imported into Australia, doesn't happen here, something that, uh, just in case, we should be prepared for. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, please email us at aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com. That's aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear uh, what you think. Thanks for listening to Aliagraphic Podcast. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at aliagraphic. Email us at aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com and check our blog, aliagraphic.blogspot.com for updates, monthly roundups of news and new release titles.